Good morning. I'd like you to join me in your Bibles in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. The end of chapter 11 is a familiar section of Scripture. It's kind of a catalog of Paul's adventures and trials. In fact, if you look in verse 24, you'll be familiar with these words probably. He says, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, and so on. Sometimes people give their testimony, and we think, boy, it was exciting before they got saved. This is Paul's testimony post-Christ, and it's exciting after he got saved. But Paul feels a little awkward here in doing what he's doing because he uses the word I so often. So he wants to preface it. What he says kind of parallels the boasting of the false teachers, and so he wants to prepare us for that. And notice how he introduces this passage in verses 16 to 21. And again I say, let no one think me foolish, but if you do, receive me even as foolish, so that I also may boast a little. What I am saying, I'm not saying as the Lord would but as in foolishness in this confidence of boasting. Since many boast according to the flesh, I will boast also. For you being so wise, tolerate the foolish gladly. For you tolerate it if anyone enslaves you, anyone devours you, anyone takes advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, anyone hits you in the face. To my shame, I must say that we have been weak by comparison. But in whatever respect anyone else is bold, I speak in foolishness. I am just as bold myself. And off he goes. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. What I find interesting here is that in these six verses, Paul refers to himself five times as foolish. Now, what do you think of when you hear the word fool? The dictionary definition says a fool is a silly or stupid person. Plato said wise men speak because they have something to say. Fools, because they have to say something. Mark Twain said it's better to keep your mouth shut and be thought a fool than to open it and leave no doubt. A Chinese proverb says, he who asks a question is a fool for five minutes. He who never asks a question is a fool forever. Maybe my favorite quotation is from Mr. T. I pity the fool. (laughs) Fool is a very derogatory term. You say, I would never refer to myself as a fool. Those are fighting words. Well, that's why I thought it would be worth our while this morning to broaden our discussion. Because did you know that the word fool, foolish, foolishness is used 183 times in the Bible? And the reality is that everyone is a fool. The only question is, what kind of fool are you?
You say, Dan, are you calling me a fool? No, I'm not qualified. And it's a dangerous thing to call someone a fool. Because Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, if you say, you fool to someone, you deserve the fires of hell. So I'm not going to call you a fool this morning. I'm going to let God do that. God singles out three kinds of fools in Scripture. The first is the unbelieving fool. And the first fool we meet is described in Psalm 14 and verse 1. And I'd like you to turn back there. Psalm 14 and verse 1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. I heard about an atheist who was complaining to his friend that atheists have no holiday. Christians have Christmas and Thanksgiving and Easter. And his friend said, well, why don't you take April 1st? You know, about 7% of Americans claim to be atheists. Some would argue that that percentage is even higher. I would argue that it's lower. In fact, I would argue that it's zero. Because I believe there's no such thing as an intellectual atheist. There are only practical atheists. Atheism is not a mental issue. It's a moral issue. The Bible says in Romans 1.20 that God has revealed himself so clearly that we are without excuse. Nobody can say, I didn't get the memo that there's a God. God has revealed himself. He's revealed himself in a variety of ways. He has revealed himself in creation. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. Now, if you look at the heavens and say, The heavens declare the glory of chance, that's your problem. God has clearly revealed himself in creation. Secondly, he's clearly revealed himself in your conscience. Romans 1.19 says, that which is known about God is evident within them. God has placed in us, inside of us, the innate knowledge of him. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, he has set eternity in their heart. We are finite beings in this body that is deteriorating. We have a knowledge that we are made to be eternal. There's something more. Romans 2.15 says the law is written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and accusing them. God has not only written his law and his word, he's written it in man's heart. And so he's revealed himself in creation. He's revealed himself in our conscience. He's also spoken. God has revealed himself in his word, word in flesh in the person of Jesus. Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is God manifest in the flesh. And it's very obvious that that's who he is and that's who he was because he did things nobody else did. He walked on water. 
He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He spoke like nobody ever spoke. He died himself, and then he conquered death. God has spoken in his word revealed in flesh. He has also spoken in his word in writing. That is his written word of God. He's spoken to us. I love the account of the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man at the end of that story says to Abraham, if you'll just send Lazarus back from the dead to warn my brothers, they'll believe if they see somebody has risen from the dead. And here's the response at the end of that passage. Luke 16, 31. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Why is that? Because it's a moral issue, not a mental issue. God has revealed himself in creation, in conscience, in his word, manifest in the person of Christ, and manifest in his word preserved for you. So God has clearly revealed himself. That's why when you look in the Bible, the Bible doesn't deal with atheism as an intellectual thing. The Bible doesn't try to persuade you there's a God. What's the first verse of the Bible say? In the beginning, God. See, atheism is not a head problem. It's a heart problem. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 21, it says, For even though they knew God, even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image. They knew God, but they didn't honor Him and they didn't give thanks. And what happened? They went down, down, down into foolishness and darkness. And eventually they worshipped the creature rather than the Creator. They worshipped images, idols, instead of the true God. A professed atheist is not a person who cannot believe in God. It's a person who will not believe in God. You see, the atheist problem is not too little evidence. It's too much threat to their lifestyle. Because if there is a God, then I have to be accountable to him. If there's no God then there's no judgment, there's no punishment, no standard, no accountability, no restraint. Psalm 10.13 says, Why do the wicked renounce God? He has said in his heart, You will not require an account. Why does a person want to get God out of the equation? Because I don't have to be accountable. You say, well, Dan... Psalm 14.1 is talking about an intellectual atheist, isn't it? Well, let's look at it again. What does it say? The fool has said in his mind. Is that what your Bible says? No. The fool has said in his heart. And the Hebrew grammar is very interesting here. Because the fool isn't really saying there is no God. What the fool is saying is no God or no God for me. 
if I eat in a nice restaurant and I get a big meal and I eat the big meal, uh, inevitably after I've eaten the last bite and I say, oh, I'm stuffed, the waiter comes up with one of those dessert trays and he shows it to me and he goes, do you want dessert? And I go, oh, no, thank you, no dessert. Now, I'm not saying that the dessert doesn't exist. I'm saying I don't want the dessert. The person in Psalm 14 is not saying God doesn't exist. He's saying, no, God, for me, thank you very much. William O'Hare is the son of the famous atheist Madeline Murray O'Hare. He is now a believer who is passionate about sharing his faith in Jesus Christ. He quotes his mother as saying this, quote, I'm an atheist not because I've searched behind every star and looked under every rock to prove there is no God. I'm an atheist because I want to live my life as if there is no God. That's being honest. Billy Graham used to say, an atheist can't find God for the same reason a criminal can't find a police officer. They aren't looking very hard. And I would add to that, he'll mess up their life. Because atheism is not a mental issue, it's a moral issue. In fact, if you look again at Psalm 14, what does he say? The fool has said in his heart, no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. I wrote down a character sketch of the fool mentioned in Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. Here are some of the things. If you want the verses, you can ask me later. He blasphemes God. He mocks at sin. Sin is like a sport to him. He despises instruction. He hates knowledge. He has no, no delight in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. He is full of words, walks in darkness, is corrupt, meddles, slanders, lies. He is slothful or lazy. He is angry. He is contentious. He is a grief to his parents, and he clings to his folly like a dog to its vomit. He commits foolishness, and he turns around, and he goes right back to it like a dog to its vomit. Are you an unbelieving fool? Are you saying, no God for me? You know, the reality is, person is really not an unbeliever, they are a pre-believer, because there's a verse in Philippians 2 that says, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There will be no atheists 20 seconds after death. There will be no atheists when Jesus comes back. But then it'll be too late. And that's why 
God calls them fools. Then there's a second kind of fool, and that's an unprepared fool. And this second kind of fool is represented in a story that Jesus told in Luke chapter 12. And I want you to look there as well in Luke chapter 12. Jesus tells a story about a rich man who had very productive land. It was so productive that he couldn't store all his crops. And so he said to himself, I'm going to tear down my barns and I'm going to build larger ones. And I will lay up grain and goods for years to come. And then when I build my big barns and I get them all full of grain, then I'm going to take my ease and I'm going to eat Drink and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this night your soul is required of you. Now, what made that man a fool? According to the story, he didn't cheat, he didn't steal. He didn't lie. He earned his money the honest way by the sweat of his brow. And we're not told in the story, but I'm guessing that his wife found him the next morning slumped across his expansion blueprints. I'm guessing that at the funeral, his friends eulogized him. He was a wonderful man. He was a community leader. He was a business entrepreneur. I'm sure they buried him in an expensive casket with his name engraved on a polished tombstone. But God had another name for him. Fool. And why is that? Because he prepared for retirement, but not for eternity. He prepared for life, but not for death. He was prepared materially, but not spiritually. Now, this guy doesn't say, no God. This guy doesn't say, there isn't a God. He just acts like it. This person says, I believe in God. This person goes to church. This person bows his head in reverence when someone prays. This person says, I trust in God. But if you'll notice verses 18 and 19, he says, I will, I will, I will, I will. He says, I trust in God, but who does he trust in? He trusts in himself. Proverbs 28, 26 says, the fool trusts in his own heart. And if you tried to correct this guy, he probably is not going to listen. Proverbs 15.5 says, a fool rejects reproof. He's probably going to say, I know I'm right. I'm okay. God is pleased with me. That's why he blesses my fields. That's why I'm so prosperous. God is smiling on me. Proverbs 12, 15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, 
There's a verse in Ecclesiastes 5.1 that warns us against going to the house of God and offering, quote, the sacrifice of fools. What is that? The sacrifice of fools is a person who worships in his own way and doesn't know that he's doing it wrong. Some of the most sobering words in Scripture are when Jesus talked about people who will one day say to him, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this and that in your name? And Jesus is going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. They think they're prepared. They look to others like they're prepared, but they are not prepared. Jesus told the story of the ten virgins waiting for the bridegroom in Matthew 25. Remember that story? Ten virgins. It says five were wise and five were foolish. Now, the interesting thing about the story is they all fell asleep. So they weren't waiting that well. But five of them were foolish because when the bridegroom showed up, they didn't have any oil for their lamps. And when they went to get oil, they got locked out of the party. What's oil? Oil is what you put in your lamp to light your lamp. Oil symbolically is the Holy Spirit in Scripture. They didn't have a light. They didn't have a flame. They weren't prepared when the bridegroom came back. Now, what's interesting is they believed he was coming. They even went out to meet him. But they weren't prepared. So let me ask you the question this morning. Are you prepared for the bridegroom? Are you ready if Jesus comes back today? Are you ready if this is the last day you have on earth? Don't be the unprepared fool. And then thirdly, is the unashamed fool. This is the kind of fool you want to be. For this, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 10, where Paul says, We are fools for Christ's sake. Now, how do you qualify as this kind of fool? How do you qualify? What are the characteristics of a fool for Christ? I wrote down three things. Number one, admit it. Admit it. While you're right here in 1 Corinthians 4, look at 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 18. It says, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he might become wise. How do you get wise? You first have to admit that you're foolish. Have you ever noticed that the way of God is full of paradoxes? 
God's always saying, go this direction, and it doesn't seem like the way, naturally, I should be going. God says, if you want life, go through death. If you want to be exalted, humble yourself. If you want to get victory, you have to surrender. Those are our paradoxes. Here in this verse, we're given another paradox. If you want true wisdom, you have to first admit that you're foolish. And why do you have to do that? Well, because God doesn't need your wisdom. In fact, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 27. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world. You say, I'm no fool. Well, then you're not chosen. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he might nullify the things that are. Why? So that no man may boast before God. We are foolish, weak, base, despised. We are the things that are not so that God gets all the glory. First of all, you have to admit it. Secondly, you have to proclaim it. Did you know that the message we proclaim is a foolish message? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness. There it is. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. To be a fool for Christ, you not only have to admit you're a fool, you also have to step out and proclaim the message of the gospel, which is going to sound like foolishness to the people who hear it. They're going to say, you're nuts. Let me illustrate that. Let's say I get off a boat from Peru. I tell you my name is Jose Sanblanco. I'm here proclaiming good news. There was a Peruvian peasant by the name of Carlos Hernandez who went to the electric chair for your sins. I start to gather a following. We start singing hymns like at the electric chair, at the electric chair, where I first saw the light. Beneath the electric chair of Carlos, the old rugged electric chair, pretty soon people start wearing little gold electric chairs on necklaces around their neck. An agency that takes blood donations arises by the name of the red chair. Prior to a big race, athletes make the sign of the chair. (laughs) You say, that's crazy. That's exactly how people hear the gospel of Jesus Christ the first time. That's crazy. 
How could you be lifting up somebody who died 2,000 years ago? How could you make a cross the center of your message when the cross is a symbol of losing rather than winning? It's a message of foolishness. In fact, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 22. It says, For indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. There were only two categories of people in the first century. There were Jews and there were Gentiles. He says the Jews are all about signs and power. The Gentiles are all about wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. What do they think about that? To Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. When you proclaim the message of the cross, people are going to mock you by saying, that is weak and that is foolish. But we who believe know paradoxically that it is God's power and God's wisdom. And so as fools of Christ, we keep proclaiming it. And the exciting thing is, we see the miracle of God working people's lives to take people like me, who was a, an unbelieving fool, to bring me over to being a fool for Christ. You've got to admit it, proclaim it, thirdly, Live it. Live out the paradox. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and the gospel will save it. The world is going around trying to save its own life. Jesus says the paradox is, if you'll lose your life for me in the gospel, you will find it. You will save it. Fools for Christ not only believe the message, they live out the paradox. They lose their life in order to find it. Jim Elliott was an honor student at Wheaton College. Everybody thought he was going to do great things. They were shocked when he told everybody, I'm going as a missionary to Ecuador. They said, well, you should stay in the U.S. and build a big church, and you should do this, and you should do that. It's silly, it's foolish for a guy as trained and qualified as you are to go off to Ecuador and speak another language to people. He went anyway. He decided that God was calling him to take the gospel to the Alka Indians, cannibals. If you know the story, he and four other guys went to take the gospel to the Alka Indians and they were killed, massacred, martyred by the Alka Indians. People said again, he's crazy to have gone to Ecuador. He's crazy to try to take the message of the gospel to people like that. 
when he was a student at Wheaton College. He wrote these words in his journal. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's living out the gospel. That's living out the paradox of the cross. I will lose my life here and now, this temporal life, in order to take hold of life indeed. So let me close by simply asking you this question. What kind of fool are you? Are you an unbelieving fool who says, no God for me? Are you an unprepared fool investing in everything but eternity, preparing for everything except your death? Or are you an unashamed fool, admitting foolishness, proclaiming a foolish message, and living out the paradox of the cross, that resurrection life comes through voluntary death? As you're thinking about that this morning, we're going to do something really foolish. We're going to take some bread and a cup, and we're going to remember a man who died nearly 2,000 years ago. That's a foolish thing to do, unless you believe and understand that that same man was God in the flesh and that he rose from the grave and conquered death, and he's alive today. Which makes that the wisest thing we can do, is do what he told us to do, and remember him. As you do so, I'm going to ask you to examine your hearts this morning. Make sure your relationship is right with him, the living Christ. And let's worship him and celebrate him this morning as we do so. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. For the message of the gospel, which is so simple and so paradoxical that it confounds the wise. It's a message that not only does it not require any wisdom from us, it requires that we admit our own foolishness to come to you. Because you don't want any boasting from us, and you deserve all the glory. Today we take in simple fashion this bread and this cup. We remember you, Lord Jesus. We pray today that you would draw true worship out of our hearts. We pray if there are any here today who are not prepared, that today we would get prepared in relationship to you. We thank you for the privilege of that, knowing that whenever we turn to you, from whatever we're doing, no matter how we've rebelled. As they sang earlier, mercy runs to us. You embrace us and you forgive us. And that's all based on the cross where you paid the debt we could never pay. We thank you and we praise you and we give you all the glory today in Jesus' name.